Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you food lovers, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'd like to think that chefs are artists, and as chefs, we love crafting signature dishes, folding in our own creative touches, and letting bits of our personality marinate through. Blending textures and flavors to create the ultimate experience is our specialty, and you will learn it all here. So don't touch your dial, because this hour is going to feed your soul. I love everything having to do with fabulous food, delectable dishes, Pros like cookbooks written on the subject, wine, mixology, travel, fitness, health, and more. It is all covered here, and every Sunday it delights me to share with you my passion. I'm always serving up seconds as well at chefjamie.com. It's all new, in fact, and I'd love to know what you think of my new website, www.chefjamie.com. C-H-E-F-J-A-M-I-E dot com. You, you can always email me directly, by the way, jamie at chefjamie.com with your feedback and questions and comments as well. And you should know that podcasts of this show are posted on my website, where in just one click of your mouse, you can catch all the shows that you've missed. And you can find me with daily dish inspiration on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So let me set the table for you today, because we do have a full plate, in fact. We're going to dish on traditional and modernized Chinese techniques, Coming up in just a bit, we're going to spin some pizzas as well, and we'll cook, pray, and eat kosher this hour to celebrate the Jewish holiday upcoming of Passover. But first, I thought we would behold the poke bowl. Yes, poke, in all of its mysterious glory. It's actually a culinary conundrum that few on the continental U.S. can actually pronounce. It's poke, by the way, and it's the next big thing in fast food. So poke, the Hawaiian raw food specialty, is crashing into the national dining scene with Pokerias, yes, just like a taqueria, popping up from coast to coast. You are going to see retail spaces of fast or fast casual food joints that are serving solely poke. Fantastically fresh raw cubes of seafood marinated in a little bit of soy sauce and some aromatics. So move over salad because poke is here. Now, this treasure has long been a staple in the Hawaiian Islands for centuries, but it's just of late that the poke phenomenon is sweeping the nation as a must-have food trend. So you should be in the know. Poke is sashimi, Hawaiian style, very simply said. The Hawaiian word for cut crosswise into pieces is actually what poke translates to. And it's one of Hawaii's most beloved, if not their signature dish. Now, Poke was originally developed as a way to preserve local seafood. The fish was cut and salted and seasoned for extended shelf life. And in its most basic and traditional form, it combines cubes of raw ahi tuna with seaweed and ground kukui nuts and sea salt. And then uh, sliced green onions and chili peppers and some more aromatics are the most recent addition that reflect the 50th state's melting pot status. Now, it was once Primarily served only in the home, 
But it's an island favorite that can now be found everywhere from Hawaii's supermarkets to the poo-poo or appetizer menu in fine dining restaurants. And poke actually reached celebrity status in 1991 when local luminary and poke promoter Sam Choi, who actually calls the dish Hawaii's soul food, started the annual poke festival and recipe contest. And the contest inspired thousands of amateur and professional chefs, and it helped expand the definition of poke to include any dish that contained diced and seasoned seafood. Now, fresh fish is the most important ingredient in a poke bowl. The fresher, the better, of course. And ahi tuna or yellowfin tuna, the most common choice used in the islands. But when you're choosing a fresh fish, you have to consider three things. Smell, first and foremost. Fresh fish, by the way, should always have a very light fish smell, like almost no smell, or that sense of, or uh, that smell of the ocean. Then color, of course. Fresh tuna should be bright crimson red. And then texture. If you have an opportunity to touch it, it should be firm to the touch. And then, as Sam Choi says, the fattier the fish, the better it will taste. So, I strongly advise against using anything that is farm-raised or frozen, as the texture of your poke will be compromised. Now, as long as you can buy ultra-fresh fish, and oftentimes you'll see sushi quality, or grade A, or even double grade A quality in the fish section of your favorite supermarket, or ask your fishmonger for such, then you'll know that you're going to get the ultimately flavored poke. Now, when it comes to the cut, because I think everyone should have a signature poke recipe for the summer, don't you think? The cut is best when it's with the grain, not against it. Because that way you'll avoid the perforated edges. So you'll cut it into cubes and you'll salt the fish to taste using preferably Hawaiian or sea salt. And the size of the cubes actually depends on your personal taste. I happen to love just a bite-sized cube so that you can, you know funnel the poke into your mouth fast. Um, But I think that it just depends on your preference, right? A smaller dice might be a little bit more elegant for a more formal appetizer, a larger, chunkier version for a more casual pool party, say. And then when it comes to the sauce and the garnishes, the traditionalists will use Uh, Fresh soy sauce and a few other ingredients, of course, like I mentioned, green onions, or you can use um, the basics uh, like uh, some sesame seeds or otherwise. Now, some have been known to add avocado cubes, cherry tomatoes cut in half. And then when it comes to the seasoning, a little bit of chili or spicy sesame oil uh, is always delicious. I happen to like the contrasting textures. So sometimes I'll add some fried wontons to the bowl or some shredded carrot to brighten up the dish. But the one thing that I think is essential to a great poke is the furikake seasoning. It's a Japanese seasoning that's made up and, by the way, meant to be sprinkled traditionally over white rice. But it's made up of seaweed bits and sesame seeds with a little bit of sugar and a little bit of salt. And it's a magic seasoning that encompasses every sweet, salty, savory, umami desire that you have. And P.S. It is especially good on popcorn. So once you create your first signature poke bowl for spring or summer, let me know how it turns out because you are now a poke expert. Please do email me and share your favorite poke ingredient addition. You can always find me at jamie at chefjamie.com. 
Okay. In food news, because food lovers should be in the know, food truck for Fido? Oh, yes, there is, because that's how Seattle rolls. Yes, there is a food truck for Fido. If you are a dog lover, well, then you should gather around lunchtime near Amazon.com's downtown Seattle headquarters. There are two common sites there, by the way. People walking their dogs and people buying lunch for their dogs at food trucks. Yes, one of those food trucks is catering to humankind's best friend. It's called the Seattle Barkery, and it's a food truck that appeals to canines with food for dogs like soft sweet treats and peanut butter everything and homemade all-natural goodies. And given the size of the pet industry, this really shouldn't come as a big surprise. The pet industry has grown to a $73 billion dollar a year industry. So needless to say, the dogs and the owners in Seattle are pretty happy with that food truck for Fido. And that is news you can use. And don't touch your dial because there is lots more delicious conversation coming up. My good friend and extraordinary cook, Katie Chin, is stopping by next. Of course, the Chin legacy, of which her mother started and Katie continues, is really bright and beautiful in the Chinese food world. And her new cookbook has just released, so stay tuned. Chinese cooking coming up. Also, the best pizza maker in the world, yes, Nino Coniglio, will be here. And he's spinning some pies for us. Plus, before the end of the hour, we will cook, pray, and eat kosher to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Passover. So stay tuned. This is your culinary playground, and there is more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are digging deep into Chinese cuisine today, and I am so proud to share with you my next guest and her newest culinary creation. And Katie Chin is paying homage to her late mom in the new cookbook release entitled Katie Chin's Everyday Chinese Cookbook. From Shumai to Kung Pao, Katie is carrying the torch and sharing her sweet and sour chronicles. And I am so glad that she's here to dish. Welcome back, Katie. Hi there. Hey, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me back. Yes, of course. And congratulations. The new book is wonderful. I loved page by page turning through seeing the pictures of your mom and the celebration of Chinese cuisine. It is a a beautiful love letter, really. And um, yes, and I know very cathartic for you. Um, Would you share a bit about your Chinese-American upbringing? Talk about your mom's legacy? Absolutely. Well, my mother was an extraordinary woman, and everything Mm. I've learned about life and cooking happened in the kitchen with her. Yes. Um, Kind of long story. I'm just going to try to cut it short, but she immigrated from China in the mid-50s to Minnesota, um, and she had always loved to cook, but she was making 50 cents an hour as a seamstress. She would Mm -hmm. make her authentic Cantonese dishes for her sewing clients, and they had never tasted anything like it, because back in the 60s and 70s, you know, it was just chow mein and chop suey. So they encouraged her to start teaching classes and catering, and so she did that, and one thing led to another. 
and she hooked up with a socialite who wanted to open a restaurant with her. So she opened her first restaurant in the 80s, and the owner of the Minnesota Twins and Sean Connery were the original investors, and she was able to build that one restaurant into a $50 million empire. Amazing. Having making 50 cents an hour as a seamstress and never even going to high school. So it's this inspiration, inspirational, remarkable story. Hmm. Against all odds, she found this incredible success and became a role model for everyone. And, um, you know, till the very end, she was doing what she loved doing, which was cooking. Yes. And you are no doubt carrying that legacy forward and paying it forward, not only in teaching all of us across the country and around the world. By the way, the NOM live cooking shows that you're doing, I love. This is really a, an extraordinary advancement in technology in that you cook live and we can interact with you and experience your kitchen adventures, right? It's nom.com. Right. Yeah, it's very it's cool. Us. I think your mother would have loved it. She would have been <laughs> telling me I'm going too slow. <laughs> That's what she would do. Um, yeah, so I have a new digital uh, live streaming cooking show called nom.com. And basically, I cook and viewers log in and they can ask me questions, type in questions, and then I can answer them in real time back to camera. It's very cool. So that's been really thrilling and fascinating. Yeah, really. Especially because, you know, I grew up helping my mom in her catering business and later in her restaurants. But what happened is I moved to L.A. and I worked in the entertainment industry for many years in marketing. And I had forgotten how to cook. Hmm. And one day I decided to throw a dinner party. And I kept calling her, and she was like, this is ridiculous. So she got on a plane with frozen lemon chicken, and she cooked the whole meal and let everyone pretend that I had cooked it. And so um, hmm. she was mortified because she opened my fridge and found only champagne and yogurt. And she was like, this is a disaster. So she kept flying back to L.A. teaching me how to cook again with my friends. And they were like, oh, my gosh, you guys make Chinese cooking look so easy. You should do a book together. So that's how my passion for Chinese cooking was reignited. Hmm. This was about 15 years ago. And so we did our first book together. We had a catering business together called Double Happiness and a show on PBS together, also called Double Happiness. Yes, which which I remember. And the photos in the book are just such a, a beautiful sort of a compilation of all of those years and your family legacy and the the memories that go along with it. And I know from reading through the book and from knowing you for a lot of years um, that there is something extraordinary about delivering the Chinese culture and the world of Chinese cooking to home cooks in a very understandable way. I, I think it's one of the exceptions to the rule of the fact that this wide world of food has grown so progressively for all of us, which is wonderful. But there are still many ethnic cuisines that are steeped in tradition and secrets that aren't shared and and really accessible for all of us to create on a daily basis. That's what this book is. This book is You Love Kung Pao. Step by step, I'll teach you how to make it. It is intimidating to people, but the reality is that same techniques and process is used again and again and again. And I mm. think if you just experiment a few times, you gain the confidence yes. and realize, hey, this is really not not that hard. Right. And you don't even necessarily need a wok to cook Chinese food because today's stovetop 
you know, get, they get so hot, you can use a skillet. Hmm. It's totally fine. That's great. I also like to give tips like going to the salad bar at the grocery store to get uh, vegetables for stir fries because they're cut, cleaned, and ready to go. And in today's, you know, with our hectic lifestyle, we all need tips like that to make our lives easier. Very smart. Very, very smart. I think it would uh, make your mother proud, or at least I hope um, that it would, if you would please give us the top trick or technique for cooking a perfect pot of rice. Because doesn't great Chinese food start there? The secret to perfect rice does not lie in a box, okay? Or a rice um, cooker, always. The rice cookers are amazing because it really takes the thinking out of it. Yes. Because um, you can get one for like 15 bucks at Target, you know? Um, and, and they go all the way up to $500. Yes. But I think that that's a great investment to make. But the key to a perfect pot of white rice is actually washing the rice. Hmm. So what you need to do is put your rice in your pot, add water, swirl it around, and kind of scrub the grains about six or seven times, and then um, pour the water out and start over again. You want to do this. Otherwise, as the rice cooks, it reabsorbs starch in the water and makes the rice extremely sticky and mushy. And that's why people sometimes... You know, they get scared when they think about washing rice. If you do this, I guarantee you, your life will change. Hmm. And I'm an expert at washing rice because it's the job of the youngest child in the Chinese family is to oh, wash the rice. I never knew that. How interesting. And I'm the youngest, so I'm an expert at it. But um, seriously, practice makes make perfect. All the in the world. Yes, for sure. Um, and then um, with that pot of rice, if you gave me sweet chili soy sauce... The recipe at the start of the book in your sauces chapter, I think I would be very happy. Just rice and sweet chili soy sauce. Sometimes the most simple things are the most sublime. Yes. And this sauce is very easy to make. It's basically just some soy sauce, water, sugar, a star anise pod, and some crushed red pepper. So it's the perfect blend of sweetness with Mm. a bit of a bite of heat at the end. And salty, of course, from the soy sauce. Yes. But it's something that you can drizzle over fish, over stir fries, over just a plain bowl of white rice. Yes. And Perfect. It's delicious. I'm going to make some and keep it in the fridge, and then I'm going to speak your name every time I use it, Katie. <laughs> um, so, and the star anise pod you can buy, you can find in a lot of grocery stores today, but um, available at any Asian market. Mm-hmm. And it has that anisette licorice notes, mm-hmm. very subtle, but it gives that delicious air of authenticity with the sauce. Sounds so good. You're making me hungry. Um, pot stickers. <laughs> time, isn't it? Yes. Uh, pot stickers, uh, one of your mother's specialties, one of the techniques that she taught uh, on your PBS series that everyone talked about and still talks about today, the process of sort of making the homemade dumpling very accessible for the home cook. Today, you can find dumpling wrappers really anywhere at any grocery store. They're usually called sticker wrappers or gyoza wrappers. If you can only find wonton wrappers, you can just cut off the edges um, for round shape of the cookie cutter. Mm. It's a very simple recipe. I use ground pork, but you could substitute with ground chicken. Just have a little bit of Napa cabbage and some sesame oil, sesame oil and white wine. Mm. And then, you know, you basically just pleat the dumplings, and I, I believe we have a how-to um, section on that. And what makes potticker so delicious, hence the name potsticker, is that you pan fry them, yes. right, to get that delicious golden brown crispy bottom. Mm-hmm. Then you add a bit of water and steam them the rest of the way. 
so they're crispy yet tender and fluffy on top. The new cookbook is called Katie Chin's Everyday Chinese Cookbook, and it is a must-have for great cooks everywhere. It is available now. Learn more. Order your copy at thesweetandsourchronicles.com. Katie, to banana spring rolls and crab fried rice and pot stickers together soon. Thank you so much, Jamie. Yes, Thank of course. Thank you for being such a wonderful friend, and oh, I can't wait to Thank cook you. and eat with you. Soon. I know. Me too. Cheers to you. Thank you, Katie, so much. There's more delicious conversation in your radio. If we haven't made you hungry already, Chef Jamie Gwen, we'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, sharing delicious conversation. Our kitchen cultures are ever-changing in this fast-paced and wonderful world of food, and kosher lifestyles are a growing trend, with the ancient diet paving the way for cleaner, healthier choices. With the Jewish holiday of Passover upon us, Mia Adler Ozair has stopped by. Mia is a psychotherapist, an educator, and an author, and her new and very heartfelt cookbook is a spiritual exploration of Jewish life and its deep connections with food. She plays on the culturally diverse nature of her marriage and her family's favorite dishes, Yes, she is a mother of nine, and she weaves together the culinary pleasures of both Ashkenazi and Sephardic heritages. The book is entitled Cook, Pray, Eat, Kosher, and I'm very glad to have you here, Mia. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Okay, um, the book is beautiful, by the way, and I really got a sense of family, and I love that you explain the Jewish traditions from, as you call yourself in the introduction, not an expert cook, per se. Correct, yes. <laughs> This is a little bit outside the box for you, um, but it has a very spiritual sort of deeply rooted uh, feel to it. And, and I loved that about it because that feels very Jewish to me. Um, can you touch on the essential relationship, as you call it, between food and the Jewish soul? Well, something that's so amazing is when I set out to create this book, it really wasn't a project I had in mind that was going to become what you have in your hands today. It was really going to be kind of a keep for my family hmm. so that my kids, when they got older, would have all of these different, different traditional recipes from the different lineages between my husband and myself that they could then use, you know, with, with their families, God willing. And um, as I was, you know, kind of doing some research for this and pulling it together, it grew into something that, you know, of what you see, which is I began to understand that, you know, everything in Judaism and holidays and life cycle events, it's really all about eating. It's about eating or not eating, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and so I began to examine that more closely. And what I realized is that the connection between food and our well-being was profound in the Jewish religion. And the idea that we truly are what we eat and that the people that are preparing the food for us, the love that they feel, the care and the attention that mm -hmm. they're taking, becomes a part of us. Yes. And I think that's why, in the Jewish tradition at least, the idea of food and gathering and being around the table together is so meaningful. 
I have to agree with you. I was raised a very reformed Jew, but the times that we come together and still today for the high holidays, and because my mother makes an exceptional brisket, uh, is is very much that warm, engaging connection that I I I really do believe is is very symbiotic for. Um, the Jewish families and it, their relation to food. And like you said, it's to eat or not to eat. That is the question. Um, <laughs> now, that rule applies to both Ashkenazi and Sephardic traditions. Um, and I'd love if you would define the two different styles because they're deeply rooted in the the area that your Jewish heritage is uh, is based in, right, as far as um, in Israel and the styles by which you eat? Essentially, I mean, listen, we're, we're all one people. We're one, we're one nation. And the idea being where we came from and how that influenced our food and our culture and our connection to food and preparation of it and the kind of spices that we use. So, so I, I'm Ashkenazi. My my entire family come from European background. Me too. So so we, you know, I, as I kind of discuss a little bit in the book when I'm laying the groundwork for my family and and how this book kind of came to be, I talk about how, you know, you know, specifically my family is from Germany and we're very meat and potatoes. Everything is about the meat and the starch, right? This is you know where where the the history brought us, you know, through through the, through the history and tradition of what was available. My husband, on the other hand, who is Israeli, born in Israel, but stems from the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, those kinds of, of, of countries, their entire palate is a totally different type of flavor. It's very spicy. Mm-hmm. Any Middle Eastern food that you can conceive of, you know, it's um, and, and they have a remarkably healthy diet, actually, what I've learned over time. They're just the nature of their foods that they pick and what was available to them, also very healthy. So you're kind of bringing together two entirely different tastes. Hmm. And um, it, was, it was kind of funny having to figure that out when my husband and I came together, you know, what he likes and what I like, what his kids like and what my kids like, and kind of making all of that work. Mia, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, more cook, pray, eat kosher ideas for the upcoming Jewish holiday of Passover and beyond. Don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. We're back and we're dishing. Mia will continue our conversation on cooking, praying, and eating kosher. Um, let's dig deeper into your therapist side for a minute. Can sure. you please explain Musar? Because I thought it was very interesting to read about in the book. Okay, so Musar is actually an entire branch of study within the realm of Jewish literature and Jewish mm-hmm. text. And it has to do with refining of personality and character traits according to Torah value, which the truth is, you know, anything that you would think of as a kind, decent, loving human being is what Musar is desiring to help build in people within the Jewish community and within the world at large. So what was fascinating is, as, which this is something I've studied myself, uh, and, that, you know, to make myself a better person, to help me as a parent and as a wife, 
And I began to realize that there's a lot of overlay that can take place between the concepts of Musar and thinking about how we relate to food and food itself and the preparation of food. So I kind of did something unique in taking this idea that if we think about what we're preparing and how we're preparing it, and we think about it in terms of the concept of, of, context of how it can make us better people, Mm. and help nourish our families, Mm. it turns into something really interesting and special. Of course. I I love that uh, very mindful sort of dig deeper spiritual side to religion as a whole. And I think it's wonderful how you weave that into the fabric of your cookbook. Thank Um, you. Yes. Passover is a time of rebirth for Jews. Um, I think of Kugel and Blintz's. Sorry. <laughs> um, what, is, what is on your Passover table? Well, interestingly enough, our Passover table is a very unique place because, as you know, the traditions of what's considered kosher for an Ashkenazi Jewish person versus a Sephardic Jewish person is very different. Yes. So the Sephardic um, group will eat rice and they'll eat beans and they'll eat legumes while the Ashkenaz don't. So we've had to learn how to kind of respect everybody around Mm. the table and provide everyone with what they need. That's a good life lesson. Yeah, it is a really good life lesson. And um, I think about in particular, you know, the one thing that we have, you know, in in Passover, that the tradition is this dish of the haroset, which is, I don't know an English translation for it, but it's the dish, it's the, the part of the of the Passover Seder where we're reflecting on the sweetness of being let go from slavery and so on and so forth. And when we eat this and it's very sweet, we're meant to think about that yes, and appreciate that. And um, this in and of itself is very different between the Ashkenaz and the Sephardic. The Ashkenazi, they use apples, they use walnuts, they use red wine, and they create this very nice, sweet, crunchy dish. The Sephardim use date syrup and walnuts. And it's a very kind of liquidy um, thing that they're eating on lettuce. So it's an entirely different experience. And we have both. Hmm. I think that's wonderful. I think it's so interesting to, to learn about the, the nature of the Jewish religion and the traditions and to really understand the two and find where your, uh, where your background lies and where your palate lies. Because we know, as we spoke about, that so much of the Jewish culture is, is based um, in food. Um, really interesting and really insightful conversation. And so I thank you for your time, for your passion, for a very loving a beautiful cookbook that I think represents um, Judaism as a whole uh, very extraordinarily. It is called Cook, Pray, Eat, Kosher, and it is the essential kosher cookbook for the Jewish soul. It is written by uh, psychotherapist, educator, and author Mia Adler Ozair, and 10% of the proceeds from the cookbook Go to support Jewish education. Kudos to you, Mia. Um, it really is a, a combination of food and spirituality and how they come together on the path of life and a beautiful book. Learn more about Cook, Pray, Eat, Kosher at miaadlerozair.com. Mia, come back soon and celebrate um, the next Jewish holiday with us, will you? Thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to having you back. As the delicious conversation continues... Stay tuned. You just might learn something else new and fabulous. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away.
Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio, pleasing your palate every Sunday. Nino Coniglio is an alumnus of the United States pizza team and holds five wins worldwide for acrobatic pizza spinning competitions. The competition pits the world's best pizziolo against each other and his successes continue with this year's more recent win, naming him the best pizza maker in the world. So pizza lovers rejoice because Nino has competed everywhere from China to Paris and Las Vegas, and he seeks to bring his pizza skills straight to you live from Brooklyn. On the news of his huge win, the Brooklyn native and owner of Williamsburg Pizza, Nino Coniglio, is here to talk about the makings of a great pizza. And congratulations, Nino, on your recent win. Too cool and glad to have you. Thanks a lot, Jamie. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, tell us about the competition. Um, where were you? What was it like? What did you take home? Yes, yeah, so um, <laughs> it's actually, I believe it is the biggest pizza competition in the world now. There's uh, five divisions. You can pick one. There's the uh, pan division where you can pretty much do whatever you want. You just got to cook it in a pan. Right. There's the STG Neapolitan style, which is traditional Neapolitan pizza. Nice. Uh, cooked in a wood-burning oven, and nice. you have to, you know, stretch okay. the dough a certain way and follow a lot of European rules. Um, there's a traditional where you have um, uh, sauce, dough, cheese, and then you can pick up the two toppings, but it's optional, and they're basic toppings. Like, you can't put bananas, you know, right. basically... <laughs> basic pizza toppings. Um, and then there's non-traditional, which is no rules, and and the gluten-free division, which uh, doesn't go to the final. So Interesting. Uh, you're competing against uh, about 60 people in each division, wow. and they're coming from all over the world. There was a lot of guys there this year from Italy, um, just because this competition has become so prestigious. Pizza Today has done an amazing job over the years of just building this up into a really great thing. No doubt. So yeah, so after um after after you win the uh if you if you win in your division, you go into the uh blind box iron chef pizza challenge, which pits the first place winners against each other. There's a mystery ingredient um that everybody has to incorporate into their thing, into their pizza. You can only um you can only bring uh, your dough and your tools. You cannot bring any other ingredients. Amazing. And then there's a secret pantry that everybody just pretty much has to run to after the mystery ingredient is unveiled. Sure. Nino, what was your mystery ingredient? It was, this year, it was porcini truffle crema. Ooh, okay. So tell us what you won with. I was actually, I was surprised. I was the only one to grab the block of Grana Padano. So I did, uh, oh, I, I put love the, the shapes of Grana Padano on the crust, uh-huh. uh, extra virgin olive oil. I topped, uh, then I put buffalo mozzarella, smoked scamozza, and a little bit of fior di latte. Mm. And uh, I used uh, a bunch of different kinds of mushrooms. We had some portobellos on there. Beautiful. Um, micro mushrooms. Um, mm. oysters, and then uh, rosemary, the porcini truffle crema, and uh, nice. they had pignoli nuts. I decided to use that, which uh, was a little bit different. A winning, then, a winning combination. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that was it. Very cool. Talk about scamozza for a second. I love smoked cheese. Do you use a lot of it on your pizza? We do. We 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 have smoked mozzarella at the pizzeria. We do a we do a pie that's called the apple bacon, which is uh, oh, I smoked- heard about it, Nina. Wait, this is what Ed Levine talks about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Ed Levine's a fan. <laughs> no doubt. Smoked mozzarella, um, uh, organic apples, mm. uh, bacon, gorgonzola. Mm. And, uh, yeah, walnuts, extra virgin olive oil, Parmesan Reggiano. That's the best part. That's what Ed Levine talks about of Serious Eats. He said it best. He said, and I quote, Pie Man Nino Coniglio's Pizza is born out of New York City sliced tradition, but at its finest. And I cannot wait, just so you know, Nino, for a slice of the square pie with the smoked mozzarella and the bacon and the creamy gorgonzola and the apples. So save me a piece, please. Yeah. Again, good luck to you in Parma. Congratulations on the win. He is Nino Coniglio, uh, an alumnus of the United States pizza team, and his most recent win named him the best pizza maker in the world. You can learn more about him and find a slice on his website at brooklynpizzacrew.com and at williamsburgpizza.com. Nino, once again, good luck um, and look forward to eating pizza with you at some point soon. Thank you so much, Chef Jamie. Ciao. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation and inspiration. I do hope that I've inspired you to cook new things this week. And because food is life, create and savor yours. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration for the hour. Since we're heading into summer, the bricks level or the sugar level of fresh fruit is on the rise. So what better way to welcome in the warmer months than to sip and savor a refreshing and slightly boozy dessert after dining al fresco in your blooming backyard? You will love this three-ingredient quick fix. I hope you'll love it as much as I do because it's super simple and oh-so-fresh. I like to call it bubbly melon with basil. All you do is simply use a soup spoon to scoop ripe, sweet honeydew melon into martini glasses or dessert bowls, and then you pour about a quarter cup of Prosecco or Cava or another sparkling wine over the melon, and you finish it with a few torn basil leaves, and you have the ultimate fruit dessert. Sounds really good, right? Oh, just wait till you taste it. I will post the ingredients and the method on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope that you'll check out the all new chefjamie.com and meet me here next Sunday when there is more creative conversation on all things scrumptious in your radio, teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours. Art comes in all forms, right? I just happen to love the form you can eat. I'll see you here next Sunday. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well.